good to be with you this morning. I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John chapter 5. John chapter 5 as we continue in our exposition through John's Gospel. John chapter 5, the focus of our, uh, the text that we want to focus on this morning are verses 22 through 24, but for context and to remind us of where we are at in this discourse of the Lord Jesus, I want to begin at verse 18, and we will read through verse 30. So John chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Amen. Let us unite our hearts and pray and ask God's help and blessing as we come to the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you and bless you this morning for the privilege that it is to have your word in our language that you have given to us in your word the words of eternal life. Father, there is none other than the Lord Jesus to whom we wish to go to hear the most important instruction regarding our eternal souls and how we must escape the judgment that is to come, the judgment that he will himself execute because he is the Son of Man. We thank you that you have sent your Son into this world 
the first time not to judge the world, but so that the world through him might be saved. Father, we thank you that your glorious and beloved Son, who will one day judge the earth, and before him every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We thank you that right now he stands ready to save sinners. That he stands ready to receive all who would come to him by faith. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for John's gospel. Thank you for the high depictions contained in it of the person of Christ. His majesty, his equality with you, Father. The inseparableness of his work with your work. We pray that you would send your spirit to us this morning to instruct our hearts, even as we've sung. Our thinking by nature is shrouded in darkness until your spirit breaks our night and shows to us the light of truth. We pray that he would bring the truth of your word home to each and every heart. We pray for those who are redeemed by Christ, who are your people. Strengthen our faith. Grow us in holiness. Make our repentance more regular, more consistent, more thorough. We pray for the unbeliever who is here, who is outside of Christ. Whether knowingly or perhaps by self-deception, thinking they are in Christ, we pray that you would open their eyes and their hearts to the truth of Christ in his word. We pray that you would bring them from darkness to light and show them the glories of your Son. Father, we pray all of this for your glory, that as we honor your Son, as this text instructs us, that you also, Father, are glorified in the magnification of the Lord Jesus Christ by his Spirit. Draw near to us, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we continue this morning in our Lord's public defense. If you remember, it's been a couple weeks since we've been in John, but if you can remember a couple weeks back, the Jews have charged the Lord with wrongdoing for healing this infirmed man on the Sabbath. And they call him to give a defense, which he most readily does. But the defense that he gives is an astonishing and scandalizing defense. Because he doesn't defend his working on the Sabbath by simply proving that it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, which he could have done and he does elsewhere in the other Gospels, but rather he justifies his right to work on the Sabbath by asserting his equality with the Father. Verse 17, he told them, just as the Father is working until now, so also I am working. In other words, he's taking to himself and for himself divine prerogatives and divine rights. And they rightfully understand him to be claiming for himself equality with God, as we see in verse 18. And because of that, they seek all the more to kill him. And as we began opening up this discourse Last week, as their rage is growing seemingly with, with every word that he speaks to them, Jesus does not tone it down. He does not begin to modify his claim or to qualify his claim. Rather, he says in verse 19, 
Whatever the Father does, the Son does in like manner. And he makes explicit in verse 21, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. And so he's declaring to them his equality with the Father and also the inseparable work of the Father and the Son in redemption. Jesus is telling them that just as the Father heals, so I heal. Just as the Father gives life, I give life. And today, with our text in verses 22 through 24, he ups the ante even more, and he declares to them that even the great prerogative of divine judgment belongs to himself. And so let's begin our exposition of verses 22 through 24, and then we'll turn to our doctrine and application. First of all, our exposition, and it's at this point that I do encourage you, especially if you have a copy of God's Word, to have it open to John 5 so that you can see and read the text and what God is saying to us for yourself. Verse 22, Jesus continues in this defense, this discourse. He says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed or given all judgment to the Son. Now, Christian... We get used to reading our Bibles. Things become common to us that ought not to become common to us. In the Jewish mind, and rightfully so, God and God alone is the judge of all the earth. Genesis 18, 25, and we could list dozens upon dozens of texts. And Jesus here to these religious leaders says that divine prerogative of the judgment of mankind has been committed to me. By the Father. And just so that we're clear that he is indeed talking about the final judgment, look down at verse 28. He says, do not marvel at this. And I assume he says that because at this point their jaws would have been on the floor. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice, the voice of the Son of Man, And come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. What Jesus is doing here is he's revealing to them and to us the Trinitarian nature of God's works. Specifically, God's work of judgment here. The Son, remember, as we've already seen in verse 19, the Son does nothing of himself. And what that means is that he does nothing without or apart from the Father. And now here in this text, we see something of the inverse of that. That the Father does nothing that is not through his Son. You remember from chapter 1, when John said that all things have been made by the Father through the Son. We see in in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus say that it's the Father who clothes the lilies and feeds the birds. And yet we see that in Hebrews 1, the Father does that through His Son who is upholding the universe by the word of His power. And so also, the act of judgment is an act of the Father through the Son. Now you might be saying to yourself, wait, but Jesus says the Father judges no one. Okay, here's an exegetical encouragement. We need to interpret particular verses in a way 
that reflects and is cohesive with the whole counsel of God in all of the scriptures. Jesus' point here in saying the Father judges no one is not to say that on that great last day the Father is just going to kind of take a sick day and the Son is just going to act solo in, in judgment. That's impossible, first of all, because Jesus has already said he can do nothing apart from the Father. And he said that it's what he sees the Father doing that he does in like manner. The point here is not that the Father has no involvement in the judgment of the world, but rather he's emphasizing, like all of the works of God, judgment will be a Trinitarian work, an act of Father, Son, and Spirit. I'll give you a few verses. One is in our passage, so you don't have to turn anywhere yet. Look down at verse 30. Jesus says, I can of myself do nothing. Now again, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, that's not an expression of weakness, like Jesus is saying the Son lacks power. That is an expression of the unity of the divine will. The Son cannot do anything contrary or apart from the Father. He says, of myself I can do nothing. And then he says, as I hear, I judge. Well, hear from who? The Father. And he says, my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So here you see both Father and Son involved in the act of judgment. Turn to Romans 2, 16. Romans 2, 16. While you do, I'll see if I can get my fan going. helpful if it's plugged in. Okay, Romans 2.16. Romans 2.16, the context here is Paul is explaining to the Roman Christians that the Jews who have the written law of God are going to be judged by that written law of God, and the Gentiles who don't have the written law of God but have the law written on their hearts by nature are going to be judged accordingly. And he says in verse 16, in the day when who will judge? God will judge the secrets of men by or through Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. Okay, so according to Romans 2.16, who judges mankind? Is it the Father or is it the Son? I hope someone said yes. Okay, thank you. It's the Father and the Son. Um, turn to Acts 17.30. Acts 17.30, very well-known passage. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance to the, of this to all by raising him from the dead. So you see, the Father has appointed a day on which he will judge the world by the man, the man Christ Jesus, whom he has appointed. That, that's simply another way of describing what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. Right? Christ's exaltation after his humiliation. Where Paul writes, Therefore, God has also highly exalted Christ and given him the name which is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and under the earth. Right? That's, that's the language of judgment. The king has taken his seat as judge of the world. And Paul goes on and says and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father will be glorified on Judgment Day when every knee bows to the Lord Jesus and acknowledges Him as Lord. Turn back to John 5. That is exactly what John, uh, verse 23 of John 5 states. Verse 23, why has the Father committed judgment to the Son? Jesus says that or so that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So the Father's purpose in sending the Son to become incarnate as the God-man and giving to His Son a kingdom and appointing Him as judge of all the world is so that all would honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And... Notice the Father is honored when the Son is honored. Look at the second half of that verse, of verse 23. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Now notice the exclusivity of that statement. He's talking to Jews who are dishonoring Him, who think He's a blasphemer, and they think that they are honoring the Father by doing so, and Jesus says to them, if you don't honor me, you can't honor the Father. He will say to them in John chapter 8, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Notice he doesn't just say that honoring the Son is one way to honor the Father. He says there is an exclusive way by which the Father is honored, and that is through honoring the Son he has sent. Which means... Receiving his word that he speaks. Remember verse, or excuse me, chapter 1, verse 18 of John's gospel. You can turn back there if you're quick. Chapter 1, verse 18 is a pivotal text that in a sense governs many themes in the gospel of John. John at the end of his prologue in verse 18 of chapter 1 says, No one has seen God at any time but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him or made Him known. In other words, what John is opening up his gospel with is that Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is God incarnate. He is, as Jesus will later say, He is in the Father and the Father is in Him and the Son has been sent to declare the Father. Such that Jesus will say to Philip in the upper room, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And indeed, he'll say in that very same conversation, he will say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. There, there is no honoring the Father if you dishonor the Son. There is no receiving the Father if you reject the Son whom he has sent. Calvin comments on this verse with these words. He said, let us direct our eyes to Christ alone. Because in his face, Christ's face, God the Father, who would otherwise have been hidden and at a distance, 
appears to us so that the unveiled majesty of God does not swallow us up by its inconceivable brightness. He who does not honor Christ by ascribing to him the majesty and honor he deserves cannot know the Father. Lastly, in our exposition, verse verse 24. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. This is so crucial for us. How does one know that they have eternal life and will not come into judgment? Jesus says, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me. And those two things go together, don't they? You can't refuse Jesus' word. You can't say, no, Jesus, you're a liar, and simultaneously believe uh, that the Father has sent him. Because the Father who sent him has has set his seal to his Son. And therefore, to reject the word of the Son is to make the Father a liar. To believe in the Father is to hear with approval the words of his Son that he has sent. And when Jesus says, he who believes and receives my words or hears my words, that includes all of his doctrine and teaching. It includes his equality with God. The very thing that these Jews were rejecting. Believing his word includes believing his verdict about our utter sinfulness and hatred of the things of God. Believing his word includes the reality of God's judgment and wrath coming upon all who do not embrace the Son. His word, believing his word, includes believing that Christ is the exclusive way by which sinners can be reconciled to the Father and that we must desperately seek from Christ mercy and pardon for our sins before it is too late. Lest we wake up on resurrection morning an enemy of this majestic judge. Let's turn to our doctrine and application. Our doctrine and application. I've combined these this morning for time's sake. I have three things, very simple and yet very important for us. I'll give them to you as we go. How are we instructed from this text? We've seen something of what the text means, of what Jesus means by his words, But doctrinally and practically, how does this text touch down and instruct us in our Christian living? I've got three things. Number one, we are instructed from this passage that there will be a final judgment. We're instructed from this passage that there will be a final judgment. Christian, listen to me. Unbeliever, listen to me. This is something that every man, woman, and child needs to have impressed upon their souls often so that they would fear God and obey His Word. That there is a day fixed in which every man and every woman and every child who has ever lived will be raised from the dead and summoned into the presence of the glorified Christ, glorified Christ to be judged by him. And all of them, all of you, myself, will hear from the lips of the Lord Jesus with utter finality, 
either well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master, or you will hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. The Bible does not teach that everyone just automatically goes to a better place because they die. It does not teach, the Bible does not teach a cyclical reincarnation. The Bible teaches us that world history is linear. It had a beginning and it will have an end. And the end that it is driving at is that great final day in which the triune God who made and rules the world will bring a final reckoning. When as Revelation 20, as Revelation 20 describes it, on that day the sea will give up the dead which are in it. And death and Hades will give up the dead that were in them. And both great and small, all of us, everyone will stand before God. And John tells us the books will be brought out. That is, the books containing God's perfect knowledge of all the works of men. At this judgment scene, there will be no prosecution. There will be no defense. Because Christ will be there and He will judge the secrets of men because He knows what is in man. No second chances, no whiteout, no plea deals. And then John says another book will be brought out. The Lamb's Book of Life. And he says that anyone whose name is not found in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, it's very possible you're just thinking, knowing Christ and believing Christ right now really is just not a very important thing. And I want you to know from the Word of God, God is addressing your soul that judgment day will prove that kind of thinking to be the height of folly. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto men to die once, and then comes the judgment. I plead with you, if you're here, and you've been deceived by the devil, and you've been deceived by men who peddle the word of God, and you've let your ears be tickled with the idea that God is just a big nice teddy bear in the sky and it's his job to be lenient and to just wink at sin, I plead with you, listen to the word of God. Hebrews tells us our God is a consuming fire. And what a fearful thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God. If you want proof that God cannot and will not wink at sin, look at Calvary's cross where the Father did not even spare His own Son, but crushed Him with the punishment of our sins so that we could be forgiven. It is the height of folly to think that though God did not spare His own Son, yet He will spare me. God is holy. God is just. God is perfect. And He requires and demands perfection from His creatures. Which is why if you don't trust Christ, the only one who is and was perfect, 
And if you don't receive from Christ by faith the righteousness of God, there is no hope for you on Judgment Day. There is no other way. There's no secondary good news I can give you that if you don't believe in Christ, well, at least there's this. There is nothing. It's Christ for life or dying outside of Christ and eternal punishment. False professor. Christian hypocrite. God knows who you are. This text should put the fear of God into you. This text should cause you to tremble that I'm playing with fire and I keep telling myself that one day I'm going to become the real deal. Really going to become a Christian. And you tell yourself, I sit under the ministry of the Word every Sunday. I know what the Word says about my condition and yet I never change. I'm still holding on to my sin. I'm still hiding my sin. I'm still loving my sin. And even though I make resolutions to the Lord that tomorrow I'm going to change and I'm going to believe, yet you know in your heart that days go by and days turn into weeks and weeks turn into months and here you are still in the same place. My friend, hear me. One day tomorrow is not going to be here for you. Or more accurately, you will not be here for tomorrow. And God will take you. And all of us who were left behind will celebrate in ignorance what we thought was a race well run and a fight well fought. But Christ knows your heart and you'll be in torment. Deal wisely with your never dying soul. Look at verse 28. I know this is next week's text, but it relates. Jesus says, all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. And notice how he describes the two groups. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Let me ask you here, and I don't know who I'm talking to, but it's very possible in a group our size, there are those who walk the walk of a Christian on the outside and yet inwardly do not have the root of the matter in you. Honestly, examine yourself from this text. Do you profess a form of Christian goodness, but inwardly you know you're full of dead men's bones? I may not be able to discern, we may not be able to discern, Always the difference between genuine Christian obedience on the one hand and whitewashed hypocrisy on the other. But Jesus knows. He knows those who genuinely bear the good fruit of righteousness because of their union with Him. And He knows those who merely have a form of godliness but deny its power. Don't be one who goes to hell from a church pew. Don't be one who drank in the Word of God but was never bettered by the Word of God. This day is coming. You will not escape this appointment. Try as you might to prolong your days. Try as you might to tell yourself that this God business and Jesus business is just a bunch of fiction. What you 
choose to believe does not change what is true. And regardless of how you tell yourself lies and you deny what God has put into your heart, that there is an eternity, here's, here's the reality. We must all sleep the sleep of death. And our bodies will go into the grave where they will await that great awakening. When more clearly than you hear my voice right now, we will all hear His voice. And more clearly than you see me, you will see Him. And none will escape His summons. The redeemed on that day, that glorious morning, when their souls are reunited to their glorified bodies and they come out of the tombs, they will with eagerness that we cannot even imagine run towards their Lord. And with shouts of victory, they will gaze upon His pierced hands as they realize our day of vindication has finally come. Nothing to fear. But the rest, and all the rest, will with great dread tremble to come before the great white throne. In fact, Revelation tells us that so dreadful will be that day that people will cry out that the mountains would fall upon them to hide them from the fury and the wrath of the Lamb who sits upon the throne. My friend, the question for you this morning is this. How will you meet Him? This is serious. Just... Forget for a moment all of the burdens of your life. I know we all have many, many distractions. Forget the phone, forget the work, forget the troubled marriage. Those things pale in comparison to the subject matter God is addressing you with here. This day is coming and your greatest afflictions now, no matter how hard you think and bad you think this life has been, that will seem like heaven if you rise unto the resurrection of condemnation. You will wish a thousand times you could just go back to this life with all of its problems. My friend, would to God that you today would cry out in your heart, what must I do to be saved? And the divine response to you is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. This judge... This gracious Christ stands ready to be your substitute. He tells us in His Word that if you, a, a rotten sinner, will but come to Him, bringing to Him nothing in your hands except your sin, and if you will plead with Him, Lord, I deserve condemnation. My sins are many and I have no excuse or no, and no reason to offer for which I should be spared. But if you say to Him, but Lord, I have this one hope that You have said in Your Word that if poor, helpless sinners apply to You for Your grace, You are most generous to give it. Sinner, come to Christ and He'll save you. From judgment. Take Him at His word. Believe His word and receive mercy. That brings us to the second point of doctrine and application. The first one is that there is a judgment to come. Secondly, we are instructed in this text regarding 
the exclusivity of Christ. The exclusivity of Christ. We know what exclusivity means. That the Christian faith is exclusive. It excludes. There is one way to come to the Father, and that is the one way the Father has appointed, and that is by believing the Son whom He has sent. We see that in our text this morning in verse 23. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 1 John 2, 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. And we could multiply dozens of texts that say the same thing. And, <clears throat> excuse me. Bethany, I know that I'm pretty much preaching to the choir here on this. You know and you believe that there is an urgency to evangelize those who are caught up in false religions that outright reject Christ. Because you know that without Christ, they will perish. And that's good, and that's right. But I want to approach this subject of the exclusivity of Christ from a different, a different angle this morning. Listen to me. You'll, you'll understand what I'm saying. The exclusivity of Christ to be saved does not merely have bearing for those who profe- uh, excuse me, does not merely have bearing for those who are caught up in different religions with different prophets, etc. But it just as much has bearing for those who profess Christ, but the Christ they believe in is a Christ of their own imagination and therefore cannot save them because he does not exist. Right? You know people like that. You might, you might be here and that describes you and you don't even realize it. You don't even realize that you don't love and trust the Jesus of the Bible. You love and trust a Jesus that you've invented who reflects your morals and your values and your beliefs. And really what you're trusting in is yourself. Listen to me. There is nothing magical or automatic about the name Jesus. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that just because someone says, I believe in Jesus, that instantly, automatically makes them a genuine Christian. Because your Jesus can be the wrong Jesus. 2 John verse 9. It's a good secondary proof text. Already in the first century, there were teachers coming in the name of Christ, claiming to be messengers of Christ, and yet they were altering Christ. Specifically in John's context, some were denying that the Lord had truly come in, in human flesh. And so they're not outright denying Christ, but they're altering who he is and what the gospel is. And John says in 2 John 9, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. That's very significant. Turn back to John 5. Verse 24. John 5, verse 24. Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. Okay. Here's a Sunday school question. Where do we learn about Christ's person 
and his doctrine and his work. We learn it from his word, right? Without the word, we don't have knowledge of Christ. We learn it from his word, the word of his apostles, and all of the scriptures. Which, what that means is that there is a fixed, objective content about Jesus that must be believed. Right? I'll give you an analogy. And forgive me, it's a silly and not that good of an analogy, but you'll get what I'm getting at. Let's say you, let's take a car. You have a car, and it has a hubcap missing, and its it, seatbelts don't work that great anymore, and let's say someone stole the catalytic converter, okay? Is the car in perfect shape? No. But is it still a car? Yes. Now let's say you've got the, merely the shell of the car, the body of the car, it's got no wheels, no axle, and it's just laying just on its belly in your front yard. It's got no gas tank, and the engine compartment has been entirely gutted, and you have filled it with potting soil, and you're using it as a decorative raised bed to grow flowers in your front yard because you like cars. At some point, someone has to say it's no longer a car, right? Here's my concern. Our culture is filled with empty Christian nominalism. Okay? Nominalism means in name only. Our culture is filled with empty Christian nominalism that has some sort of external traits resembling Christianity. And some of the language is retained, but one look under the hood and you realize this is not the Christ of the Bible. This is not the gospel of the Bible. And brothers and sisters, I'm convinced that one of our primary evangelistic tasks in the context that God has given us is not just that we need to learn how to bring the gospel to the outright unbeliever and heathen, but we need to learn how to convince false Christians that they're actually not Christians at all. Because they've embraced a Jesus who in no way reflects the Jesus of the scriptures. I'll give you examples. Take, take the subject of this text, judgment. Okay. I think, and I think you would agree, Jesus makes it pretty plain from this text that he is going to come one day and he is going to judge the world and he is going to sentence many to the resurrection of condemnation. Right? And yet, how often do you hear professing Christians, oftentimes even preachers, Painting Jesus in this light that he is one who came to accept everyone. He is one who judges no one. And by the way, you ought to be more like Jesus, by the way. Or I'll give you another example. How often does Jesus make plain in the scriptures the calling of his disciples is a calling to follow him and to take up their cross? Right? That, that's Jesus's invitation to the Christian life is come and die. Come, die to sin, die to the world, come and be crucified to the world and the world to you. And yet, how many professing Christians today describe their Jesus as one who makes virtually no, no demands upon them, except for the demand that they would be happy and pursue their dreams? 
Or I'll give you another example, very significant. It has to do with the recognition of the authority of the Scriptures. How often do we see Jesus citing the authority of the Scriptures, the binding authority, and constantly pointing his opponents, this is what God has said. This is the word that cannot be broken. And yet you've got droves of professing Christians that you show them show them things in the Bible which contradict what they believe. And I mean things that are crystal clear, like what God thinks about abortion, homosexuality, immorality, lying, theft, you name it. And they are just quick to say, well, I don't believe that. You know, that's, that's outdated, or that's just your interpretation. Or, I think that God would be more like this. Brothers and sisters, to go back to my poor analogy, that is not just a hubcap missing. That is no longer recognizable Christianity. If you love a Jesus who winks at sin and who doesn't judge anybody and who doesn't make demands on our lives and you don't love and submit to the scriptures that Jesus loved, you don't love the Jesus Christ of the Bible. And you're not believing his word. And that's, that's my point, brothers and sisters, is that so deceptive can the devil be that people can feel a sense of false security and assurance that I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, when under the hood the Jesus that they know in no way resembles the Jesus that actually saves. And my point in application to us, Bethany, is that we've got to love people enough to tell them that. I don't remember who said it, but they said that to let someone go on in damnable doctrine is to commit eternal murder because it murders their soul. Jesus said to the Jews in John 8, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. He says here, unless you believe my word, you will come into judgment. Brothers and sisters, let us resolve to be those who love those outside of Christ enough to teach them the true way of Christ. That brings us to our third and last thing, much more brief. Thirdly, we are encouraged to seek Christ now. We're encouraged to seek Christ now. And I want to I close with this for, for balance, okay? This is a heavy, sobering text. It, it, just, it just is. It brings us face to face with the most ultimate realities. Heaven and hell. Eternal life and eternal death. And that should cause us to tremble. But it shouldn't paralyze us to the point of despair. Here's the thing. Judgment is coming, but judgment has not come for you yet. If you're here and you can hear my voice, you're still alive. And God has graciously woken you up this morning to hear and to sit under the words of Christ. That means he's given you more time, another day to repent. And whether you're here and you're an unbeliever and you know you're an unbeliever, or whether you're a Christian hypocrite, or you're here and you're realizing, I've created a Jesus that's nothing like the one of the Bible, you should be afraid when you read this text of falling into the hands of the living God. 
That's one of the things this text is, is a motivation to flee from the wrath, of, the wrath to come. And so it's good that you should have a, a sense of heaviness and turmoil in your soul, but don't be utterly paralyzed by fear, but rather be motivated to flee to Christ. He's not just threatening and saying there's nothing to be done. He's inviting you to heed his words so that you won't come into judgment. Even in the warning passages of God's word, God is being gracious to us because he's warning us of what will happen and telling us what to do so that it won't happen. And so if you're here outside of Christ, turn to Christ. Believe in your heart that Christ is your only hope to be saved and reconciled to God. You don't have to stand up or sign a card or walk down here or do anything like that. Call upon Christ by faith now, this moment, and plead that he would have mercy upon you, a sinner. And he promises that this day you will be justified in the sight of God. Embrace his word of mercy. Have your fears relieved. That you can wake up on Judgment Day in Christ and know that there is nothing to worry about. Jesus says to us, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my words and believes in Him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would write your word upon our hearts. We pray that you would teach us and instruct us. Lord, we pray for any who are outside of Christ. We pray that you would drive them, even from the fear of punishment, the fear of judgment, that you would drive them to seek mercy in the cross of Christ. We pray that you would keep any minds from Slipping away indifferent, we pray that the evil one would not snatch away the seed before it can take root and bear fruit. Father, bless your people, we pray. We pray that we would be those who walk before you in both fear and joy as your children, knowing that it is a holy thing that you have redeemed us from our sins, that you have set us in right relationship. Father, we pray that we would Reflect on that as we come to the Lord's table this morning, as we reflect on the blood and body of Christ that was given for us, the church, that high price that was paid for the redemption of your people. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen our faith through this ordinance, encourage our hearts. We pray that we would rejoice afresh in your goodness to us. Draw near to us, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.